My name is Caleb Kubre, and this is Nightbeat. Coming up, a series of COVID-19 testimonials from doctors, chancellors, students, and professors. Stick around because here is your host, Joey Block. Welcome to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Tonight, we're going to be breaking down the latest happening with the coronavirus at Rutgers and around the world. The current count as of 7.45 p.m., Over 877,000 cases across the globe, more than 214,000 cases nationwide, 5,094 deaths, 22,255 infections of coronavirus in New Jersey, with 355 fatalities, as well as 45 cases here in New Brunswick. The effect of the coronavirus has taken shape on our own campus. All students, including out-of-state and international students, have been ordered to leave campus. This comes after the university resumed online classes last week. It was announced last week that the university has opened up a COVID-19 and pandemic center to combat the virus. Our own Hannah Varkey has exclusive interviews regarding both of those subjects later in the hour. Across the pond, it was announced the Wimbledon tennis tournament has been canceled. The contest has not been called off since 1945. This comes after several high-ranking officials in the British government have come down with the virus, including Prince Charles and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Today, President Trump said at the White House press briefing that he's willing to take a call from former Vice President Joe Biden on the issue of coronavirus. This comes after Joe Biden said he was interested in advising the president on how to deal with this public health crisis. At a press conference today, Governor Murphy said he's expecting the crisis to go well into May. He also signed an executive order authorizing the Division of Consumer Affairs to temporarily reactivate the licenses of recently retired health care professionals and grant temporary licenses to doctors licensed in foreign countries. The executive order also temporarily permits certain healthcare professionals to perform acts outside of their ordinary scope of practice and grants broad civil immunity to healthcare professionals and facilities providing services in support of New Jersey's COVID-19 response efforts who are acting in good faith. Over the course of the hour, we'll cover all the angles of the coronavirus, from how it's impacting Rutgers, as well as how it's impacting the local community. WRSU News reporter Hannah Varkey has an interview with a student who decided to stick around on around campus up till now. Chris Akonis will be bringing you the latest in sports. We'll also be talking about this and much more throughout the hour. But first, many hospitals have been overwhelmed with the large amount of COVID-19 cases they have been dealing with, including in our own backyard. Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital has a number of patients diagnosed with the virus they are currently caring for. WSU Assistant News Director Caleb Kuberite had the chance to talk with Robert Wood Johnson physician Dr. Shiraz U. Siddiqui to see how he is doing in the midst of this public health crisis and how the hospital is handling coronavirus cases. Here's a listen. 
Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for joining me. I thought I would start by asking, what is the situation like at RWJ right now? Um, it's definitely picked up over the last three weeks. Um, we've we've had to increase our staffing uh, pretty drastically, but uh, the planning that went into this was um, weeks in advance. So we all have our surge plans. We we know who to call on and when to call on them. Looking at the volume, so. We're kind of in the middle of our uh, plans. We we went from green, yellow, orange, red, and then our last surge plan is maroon. So we're kind of just started using the the red the red zone. What do the different phases of preparation consider? So um, it takes into consideration the manpower as far as nursing, physicians, uh, respiratory therapists. Um, Administration has done a great job of putting together those models and the different surge plans for the different areas like the emergency room, uh, the regular medical floors, and then the ICU uh, and the equipment that will go along with that. Um, so each different color corresponds to a certain number of staff and a certain number of equipment that would be needed at that time. Do you think that RWJ is prepared for the coronavirus if New Jersey becomes overwhelmed, similar to New York? Um, I, I think we were um, lucky, I, I would say is the best word to put it, that um, we've seen what's been going on in other locations and preparing for something similar. So uh, I think every place has done that to a degree. And, um, you know, it's it's the unforeseen that is catching people off guard. And Again, we've been lucky enough that we're able to see those circumstances and we're trying to prepare for that uh, the best we potentially can. And it's been a phenomenal co collaboration between uh, Robert Wood Johnson, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. The faculty from one side, the administration from the other, uh, really coming together and communicating well to make sure that the needs uh, for the for the staff and faculty and the equipment and the staffing is, is appropriate. So communication, I think, has been at an all-time high uh, between everybody. What is the best way that people can help healthcare workers and prevent the spread of coronavirus? I, I think the one thing that has been helping um, mitigate all this is the social distancing. And, and unfortunately, that means staying away from people as much as possible, you know, only going out for groceries as needed. You know, I, I, I have parents... Um, that I haven't seen in a couple of weeks now. Um, I try to FaceTime them. I try to get my kids on FaceTime so they could see them. But I know that they have risk factors. And if, you know, they potentially got sick, it, it could be uh, worrisome for all of us. So we've done what we can and we've stayed away from them. Um, especially me seeing these patients directly, I have to stay away from my own family uh, until I'm able to uh, get out of my work clothes and, and shower and decontaminate, I guess you could say. So to an extent, I, I even keep my distance from my wife and my three young kids. So I, I think this is the time that we need to take those types of measures as hard as it is. Um, but social distancing and uh, keeping away from each other is the best way for the community to help at this point. What would you say is the safest way for people to get food in this type of environment? I mean, I, I think it's better to order out than go in. So I, I think everything has its variation. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people have been asking questions like, is it better to go to a grocery store five times for 10 minutes each or once 
for, uh, you know, 40 minutes or 50 minutes. And I would say, you know, trying to minimize the number of times you go and interact with the overall world is probably the best thing to do. Um, you know, I, I'd be one of those people that would say go once and get everything you need rather than going out multiple times. So, um, you know, if you're to ask me what's better, um, getting takeout delivered to your home or going out to a restaurant, I would say getting takeout delivered to your home is probably the better way to go at this point. How extreme should people follow the social distancing guidelines? I, I would say six feet would be at all times. Um, I, I went out for a walk yesterday. I, I needed a breath of fresh air. Uh, I saw my neighbors. Um, I stayed, you know, a, a good distance away from them. Still had a conversation, but um, I stayed a good distance away from them just to kind of keep up with that six feet distance thing. Um, you know, th this is an interesting virus. You know, some people have no symptoms. Some people have uh, gastrointestinal symptoms where they have diarrhea. Other people have fevers. And the ones that get to the, admitted to the hospital are usually people that have shortness of breath. Um, so you could be completely asymptomatic and walking around thinking that you're not going to get anybody infected. But, you know, you, you could end up going to somebody's house and get people infected that would have much more severe symptoms than you do. So in, in that essence, I think the best thing is maintain that six foot distance. What should people do if they believe they have symptoms for COVID-19? So, so the best thing for them to do is, is the first thing they should do is contact their primary care doctor. Um, a lot of primary care doctors are now offering telemedicine to evaluate their patients. Um, there are some labs in the area that are also testing uh, for COVID if it becomes a concern. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that would be the first step they should take. Let a primary care doctor know. Um, what their symptoms are and what they're going through and let them evaluate whether or not they should be tested. And then if they need to be tested, the doctor can point them in the right direction. Um, I think people should, for the most part, try to stay away from the emergency room unless their symptoms get more serious. Um, I think if they're, most of the things that we see in the, in the hospital are when people get short of breath, um, when they're trying to go from one thing to one place to another, or they're trying to do activity, and they have shortness of breath on exertion, uh, that's when they're starting to show up to the emergency room. That and when they have fevers that are just uncontrolled at home. Um, and I think at that point it's fair because you also don't wanna wait too long at home um, and, and wait too long to get evaluated by somebody. Doctor, my final question is, when should people expect things are going to return to normal or at least have social distancing guidelines be relaxed? Um, I, I think based on the algorithms, we think that this thing will peak in our area somewhere in mid to late April. So uh, it's hard to say how much that social distancing is helping. I mean, the things you hear now are that it's really helping and, and hopefully that will bring down the number, the numbers that we're expecting. Mm -hmm. But um, if we're looking at the peak potentially to be uh, mid to late April, uh, you know, you have to wait for that curve to come down. So um, I would say most, you know, my educated guess and, you know, there's a lot smarter people that can do this better than I can. But uh, I would say that maybe by the end of May, June, um, you know, maybe things start getting more relaxed. But, you know, we're, we're getting ready for this thing to carry out <laughs> to August, you know. Um, I think being overprepared for this is much better than being underprepared. And, you know, we're, we should be ready to do this for the next eight weeks in my estimation.
Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for speaking with me, and thank you to all of the healthcare workers helping to stop this virus. My thanks to WRSU Assistant News Director Caleb Kubray for getting some firsthand knowledge as to what's going on with Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. Coming up next, we'll be getting some insight into how the new Rutgers COVID-19 Pandemic Center is operating in its first couple of weeks with RBHS Senior Vice Chancellor Bashir Amari. That's all coming your way right here on Nightbeat. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay. I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, give me a beat. If you're looking for music that's, well, just off the beaten path, you should tune into The Offbeat. It's alternative, electric, and just playing out their songs unfit for most ears. But I'll make an exception for you. Slow my descent into madness and tune into The Offbeat. Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Only on WRSU FM New Brunswick. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. As the government tries to slow down the spread of the coronavirus in New Jersey, the cases continue to rise. Earlier today, Governor Murphy announced the state of New Jersey now has over 22,200 total cases of COVID-19. Here at Rutgers, the COVID-19 and Pandemic Center has been formed to combat the virus. Researchers are now looking into some of the best ways of doing that. WRSU News reporter Hannah Varkey caught up with RBHS Senior Vice Chancellor Bashir Amari to talk about how the first couple of weeks of the center's efforts have been going. Take a listen. Could you tell us more about the new Center for COVID-19 Response and Pandemic Preparedness at Rutgers and what its mission is all about? Sure. Um, so this uh, center was established uh, just literally about a week ago on March uh, 24th. That's when it was officially uh, announced. It's uh, led by Dr. David Aland, who's an infectious disease uh, expert, chief of infectious diseases at the New Jersey Medical School, and um, a world-renowned uh, expert in studying um, uh, infectious diseases. He's uh, particularly known for studying tuberculosis. Um, the areas of focus uh, of the center is uh, uh, to cover all aspects that you can think of that's related to, in this case, uh, COVID-19. So it studies kind of basic fundamental aspects how does the virus uh, uh, infect cells, uh, and um, uh, what makes a particular uh, cell type within the body uh, more susceptible, for example, to the virus versus not, uh, being involved in clinical trials, uh, diagnostics, uh, uh, environmental and uh, uh, personal uh, protection equipment, the PPE kind of decontamination, which is really important, as you can imagine, given the shortage, public health epidemiology sort of policy aspects, uh, technology development, um, therapeutics, developing you know drugs, and also uh, vaccine development. Uh, and uh, lastly, social sciences aspect of things, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, engaging the community, uh, passing on information to the community, things of that sort. 
Okay, so you've mentioned the Allen Lab and their new point of care test. Could you tell us what we can look forward to with the success of this trial? Um, so this test, uh, point of care sort of by definition means that uh, Let's say uh, uh, you or I go to see our doctor. The doctor can uh, do a swab, uh, a nasal swab, and uh, in this case, within 45 minutes, uh, know whether, let's say, uh, I'm a virus uh, uh, carrier uh, or uh, not. So that's a huge advantage of this. Typically, uh, tests uh, have been taking as as much as uh, uh, 10 days. In fact, my wife, uh, who's uh, in Michigan, uh, still in Michigan now, she's a pediatrician, uh, she needed to be tested uh, because she saw a patient uh, who had was suspected for COVID, uh, and uh, it, she just found out herself la- uh, la- like three, four days ago, and it took literally 10 days. This is in the state of Michigan. Um, other places can turn it over within a day, um, but so you can imagine the benefit of uh, being able to get a result uh, within uh, under an hour. So. Uh, uh, it's still not widely available because there's a huge demand for it. There, or, uh, the, the company that uh, Dr. Aland collaborated with, it's uh, called Cephide, or, um, and uh, so uh, um, I mean they're uh, they're the distributor for this particular test. There are kits available here that Dr. Aland is doing under research protocol to try to uh, understand uh, the disease itself, but also within. Uh, Rutgers University here, um, you may have seen there was a press release that just uh, came out actually uh, earlier this morning. Um, there is a Rutgers cell and um, DNA repository, RUCDR. Um, they just have, uh, announced that they're going to be able to test uh, thousands, up, up to 10,000 uh, samples uh, a day uh, through their facility here uh, that's based uh, uh, within uh, Rutgers. So. The ability to test and especially get the result out quickly um, uh, is absolutely essential. Yeah, that would be really incredible. What makes this specific COVID-19 coronavirus strain particularly difficult to combat? Well, um, a couple of things here. One is uh, it's a new virus. So there is, as you can imagine, there's really no vaccine, uh, no treatment, uh, up to recently uh, no good uh, test for it. So that's one issue. The uh, uh, the other issue is that um, uh, most people who are infected, uh, they have no clue that they're infected. So uh, I could be, uh, hopefully I'm not infected, but uh, if I don't uh, practice uh, kind of social uh, distancing and so on, I, uh, you know, anyone I, I come close to, uh, the, the distance that's recommended by the CDC is six feet, uh, potentially, uh, I could uh, be a carrier and infect uh, others. So uh, that's one challenge is that the, the virus can spread very quickly and also, um, which uh, is what it does uh, compared, for example, to the, to the standard uh, influenza virus. So that's the problem. It, it's, a, it's a problem with many different facets, unfortunately. So in terms of solving all of these different aspects of the issue, what sort of resources and qualities does the Rutgers Biomedical Health and Sciences Department bring to solving this? Yeah, so um, this uh, new center that you mentioned, the COVID uh, Center, uh, the official name is Center for COVID-19 Response and Pandemic Preparedness. Um, So that sits uh, within an institute at Rutgers, which has a long-standing history. It's called Institute for Infectious and Inflammatory Diseases. And just by what the name implies uh, kind of their focus is infectious diseases uh, and diseases that involve inflammation as the core of the of the kind of the driver for um, 
for disease uh, manifestations. So what the center now, the, the COVID center is doing literally now, is uh, they're coordinating a couple of, uh, they're in, involved in a couple of clinical trials. Um, one of them is to um, to test, uh, to sample healthcare workers uh, and uh, controls. There's going to be 500 uh, healthcare workers and uh, uh, 250 uh, controls to look at the prevalence or how, how what is the carrier rate uh, and conversion uh, to COVID virus. And then uh, once, um, if there is an one particular, let's say if I'm if I'm tested and I'm turn out to be positive, then all my family members, all my immediate contacts will also be tested to try to understand, you know, the spread of the virus and also to try to understand um, the. Uh, response, the immune response. So in parallel, the virus is being test, tested for, but also uh, I will, if I enroll in the study, I would give uh, samples of blood and I would be followed over uh, a couple of months um, with serial uh, testing to see if, uh, how quickly I convert. So they, they do the nasal swab, let's say I'm a positive. In the beginning, my blood test may be negative for antibodies, but then to try to understand how quickly do I become immune. And this this would be huge in terms of trying to understand, um, uh, because, for example, if you look at healthcare workers, uh, one could feel comfortable uh, as a healthcare worker if I'm immune. Then I, I then I can I don't have to worry as much about first of all being a carrier for the virus, but also uh, uh, the chance of me actually uh, con uh, uh, Contact, contracting, uh, contacting, or becoming uh, a COVID uh, um, a, a disease um, um, would, would uh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So, so that's uh, uh, one aspect. The center is also involved in trying to figure out ways uh, to um, disinfect uh, masks. Um, you probably hear about these N95. Uh, PPEs, uh, and these are absolutely essential for protection of the healthcare workers. Uh, and uh, so uh, they're actively working on trying to develop tools uh, or techniques uh, to try to uh, quickly uh, disinfect uh, those masks so they could be used around. They could be used quickly used again by the same person or even uh, being shared among uh, others. Um, so those are kind of uh, uh, two. Uh, Studies. Another study that is that is about to start uh, is to test a, a couple of um, uh, therapeutics that you pr you probably hear about uh, in the news. Um, one is uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, and to try to see uh, uh, how effective it would be in a, in a more controlled uh, study. Because one of the issues uh, is uh, uh, this particular compound drug, for example, has gotten a lot of press, but it's not really clear its effectiveness is not really clear at the moment. So. Rutgers isn't the only place that's doing this. There's a number of ongoing studies nationwide, but as this data is being pulled, I think that that would provide essential information about is this uh, particular drug uh, of any use or not. Is that particular drug the drug that's used against plasmodium for malaria? Exactly. That's right. Exactly. So along the lines of healthcare, you've served as an investigator and practicing physician before you were appointed vice chancellor. So what are the main aspects of scientific research in healthcare that are being impacted at the moment? Yeah, well, this is a, a huge uh, national and, in fact, international uh, challenge because of, um, by definition, the the, uh, the importance of uh, social distancing, uh, then um, 
you, um, lab uh, investigators, uh, the, the co-workers, and this includes, for example, uh, students, uh, be it undergraduate students, graduate students, postdocs, uh, technicians, um, uh, that workforce cannot be kind of doing things uh, as usual. So uh, because of that, for example, not only at Rutgers, but other institutions, uh, uh, kind of uh, COVID-related uh, research uh, policies have been, have been implemented. So, for example, here at Rutgers, um, you cannot have any more than one uh, critical person uh, being at the lab at any one time. Um, and that the role here is, is just to kind of at least keep essential operations uh, going. So, as you can imagine, the impact is huge in terms of uh, maintaining uh, research operations, but we're permitting at least the absolute essential things to continue so there aren't you know, massive losses of time, uh, reagents, resources, making sure the equipment is, is, is going well. So that's on the downside. On the plus side, uh, uh, there is a little bit of a silver lining in a sense. Obviously, the COVID-related research, that, that's going full steam. In fact, that's, uh, that's being uh, encouraged. And as that happens, um, there is, um, because of this whole sort of uh, COVID uh, pandemic, that's where creative uh, juices are kind of uh, coming out and things are uh, changing very quickly. So, for example, the way that education uh, teaching is taking place, uh, things are done now remotely and there's, uh, you know, clever ways of of, uh, of doing this. So. Some aspects of research can still continue. For example, for the students, they can uh, they could uh, still work. For example, on uh, take advantage of this uh, time of not being uh, be, being able to work at the bench. They could still work at home from their computers. Uh, for example, to write papers, write reviews, um, plan uh, experiments, uh, and. Uh, uh, work on writing grants. All, all, all these uh, skill sets are actually really, really good for the training uh, of the, whether it's graduate student, uh, you know, graduate students or, or uh, postdocs. So the impact in terms of non-COVID is um, is huge, but at the same time, um, um, kind of creative uh, efforts uh, are. Uh, uh, and I, ideas are coming together to try to maintain the momentum as much as uh, possible, uh, while at the same time, uh, you know, coming up with ideas. Uh, sometimes for researchers, uh, you know, one doesn't have the time to even sit down and think. So in some ways, this might actually end up resulting in some really good ideas that would otherwise not have uh, uh, come uh, come forth. Thanks, Dr. Omari. So my final question for you is, what advice would you give Rocker students during this time? Well, I think that the uh, the most important thing is is to really kind of uh, take to heart uh, the uh, importance of uh, social distancing. Uh, maybe uh, this is a time that uh, instead of being lectured by by their parents, they can also lecture their parents if their parents aren't being careful with this. So I, I think that that's the most imp- uh, I would say the most important thing. But in addition to this, is to really I mean you hear all these incredible stories. Uh, People are still having gatherings, but they're having gatherings uh, remotely. So uh, there is no reason why, um, you know, all of us, uh, we're really now, you know, one big family. Uh, we can still celebrate uh, things uh, that uh, that should be celebrated, uh, look at the look at the positive uh, uh, side of things, to try to be engaged. Uh, there might be um, uh, different um, 
areas where they can do some volunteer work, for example. Obviously, they have to be careful and so on. So uh, that's another thing to see, you know, how, how can all of us really do? I mean, you're really doing this by getting the word out and, uh, and I'm trying to, you know, answer uh, your questions and, and also do th uh, additional things as well behind the scenes. But this is all, I think all of us can contribute in, in, uh, in, in different kind of ways. Um, so that, that would be, I guess, um, um, one aspect to consider for the students. My thanks to WRSU News reporter Hannah Varkey for getting that interview regarding the Rutgers COVID-19 and Pandemic Center. Coming up next, Hannah will be discussing the student side of things with out-of-state student Jesse Asafo and why he chose to remain in his on-campus residency despite warnings to get out. That's right here on WRSU-FM New Brunswick. Wash your hands, avoid sick people, and touching your face. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Shot clock at five. Baker still with it. Step back. Three-pointer. Got it. Dagger three. Geo Baker. Rutgers goes up four. Tiaboa, right corner three. Rainbow. Bingo. Oh, Continue to relive the 2019-2020 Rutgers basketball season with WRSU Sports as we present Dancing in the Dark, the NCAA season that never was. We'll look back at the rebirth of Scarlet Knights basketball under head coach Steve Peichel as the team tries to snap a nearly three-decade NCAA tournament drought with complete game rebroadcasts and commentary from the WRSU student announcers who called the games. Tune in tomorrow night at 6 as Jake Ostrove and Raj Shah Look back at the Rutgers-Wisconsin game from December 11, 2019. That's Dancing in the Dark, a Rutgers basketball retrospective. Episode 2 airs tomorrow night at 6 on 88.7 WRSU-FM New Brunswick and online at WRSU.org. Welcome back to Night Beat. I'm Joey Block. If you're just tuning in, we've been discussing the latest impacts of the coronavirus on the Rutgers community. We talked to Robert Wood Johnson physician, Dr. Shiraz Siddiqui about it, as well as RBHS Senior Vice Chancellor Bashir Amari. Now we're going to take a look at it from the student side of things. Many students fled campus as soon as they got word that the university would be moving classes online. Soon after, they announced classes would remain that way for the rest of the semester and classrooms and lecture halls now lie empty. The university is now requiring all students, including out-of-state and international, to leave their on-campus housing. One student decided to stay in his on-campus residence up to this point. WRSU news reporter Hannah Varkey has more on that for us. For the past few weeks, the lives of Rutgers students have been shifted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Resident assistant on College Avenue, Jesse Osafo, is an out-of-state Rutgers student and he shares his thoughts and views on the issue. Why did you decide to stay on campus during this epidemic? So I kind of stayed on campus because one, it's easier for me to work on campus. It's easier for me to do schoolwork. It's easier for me to focus. Easier for me to focus um, at home. I got a couple of siblings who kind of need my attention. And so, like, I kind of rather just be in my own place. I have my own apartment, you know, a TV, do my own groceries, you know, just my own space in general. So it's easy for me to do schoolwork 
Um, also, I live in Virginia, so that's a four-hour, five-hour drive. And it'll be a lot of relocation between moving my stuff to and from there instead of trying to do a storage. Plus, I'm about to start working out here. It was supposed to be June, dude, because of, you know, the coronavirus. <laughs> you know, it's been uh, it's been moved to, I guess, July. Might be August at this point because the way this joint's spreading, I don't even know, man. You don't even know. So, yeah, I was trying to, I guess, I guess ground it here, hold my ground here till I have to go back. But due to a series of unfortunate events, that might be sooner and I might have to leave much sooner than I expected. So, um, have you, how have you been feeling with the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutting down of Rutgers facilities and events? You know, it was funny because, you know, we're cracking jokes about it on Twitter. And, you know, crack, doing stuff on cracking jokes on Twitter and social media is, you know, kind of how people cope. But as time went on, kind of just saw spring break trips fall through, borders close, student centers shut down, customer centers shut down. A lot of my jobs went out. I worked like, what, five jobs on campus. I TA for two classes. I'm an RA. I work an IT job, and I work sound systems for student centers. So, like, the university shutting down, everything kind of went kind of went 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 to dust. Kind of just shows you that nothing really matters in this world. Like, a tiny little virus kind of wiped out all these trillions and trillions of dollars and large institutions in a matter of a week. So, I'm down to, like, no job. So, I'm hoping I can apply for unemployment, like, five times over to you know, get as much checks as I can. Um, so you've, you've been an apartment assistant for four years now. So how has it been in res life these past few weeks and how have your residents been feeling? So I guess res life, you know, I've been in this, this industry for four years and so, you know, it's had its ups and downs, but this has probably been the, this these last two, three weeks. It's been two weeks or three weeks, Anna? I think it's been two weeks. Oh, wait, no. Well, all, more than two weeks because this happened before spring break, right? Yeah. So pretty much three weeks in the past three weeks, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. And so, like, what was the question again? I'm thinking about all the atrocities that took place <laughs> in three weeks. I, I blanked out. Um, like, how has it been in res life these past few weeks, and how have your residents been feeling? Oh, stressful. It's been extremely stressful, but the thing is, I kind of saw it from the start, you know. See, don't, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a conspiracist, you know, myself. So, it doesn't make sense to me for Rutgers to kick everybody out a day earlier before the day of spring break, meaning that they had a corona case. Three, four days later, they released an email saying that somebody, a professor on campus, tested with a coronavirus, contracted it possibly like mid-February, early February, around that time. So they've possibly been interacting with students. So Rutgers kind of just trying to expedite the process to try to cover themselves. Later on, when I saw that coming, when they said, okay, everybody leave, maybe things get better and you come back. A lot of schools around us had canceled school for the semester and told people to, to go home. It made no sense for me. For Rutgers, just to not tell everybody to move out in the first place, I feel like Rutgers is trying to hold out and get as much money as possible 
from the situation before closing down, but they saw that it was out of control and the state kind of had to issue some some mandates for in order for them to actually, you know, kick everybody out. But it's been a kind of a sloppy process on Rutgers' end because Rutgers would send unorganized emails with a lot of grammar errors and just go from suggesting things to making things mandatory the next minute. So it caused a lot of distress for students who live out of state, such as myself, and kind of forced them to uproot themselves uncomfortably and leave. So me dealing with students on that note, um, a lot of students asked me if they're coming back. In my head, I knew they weren't coming back. I knew I wasn't an RA no more. So I kind of told the truth, like, yeah, bro, you're not coming back. None of us coming back. This is the last time you're ever going to be here unless you won the lottery for next year. Otherwise, you, you about to go home, bro. Ain't nothing we can do about it. Coronavirus is taking everything. Hold on to your loved ones. Hold on to everything you care about because this is going to be a, it's a journey at the end of the day. And hopefully we uh, will come on the other side with all our family members and our loved ones safe. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, so how have online classes been as a grad student? Horrendous. Atrocious. Trash. You know... There's a reason why certain professors are built for in-person classes and some are built for online and some professors aren't built for teaching at all. But that's not my business. We're here to talk about the the professors who kind of struggle with online classes. Granted, my professors are are good because we're kind of good at transition to the online system. However, however, um. Some of my colleagues, they told me that their their teachers are honestly like, their teachers are kind of just like, oh, they refuse to upload documents to Sakai. First of all, we're on Canvas. We've been on Canvas for two years. I don't know why that's a thing. Some professors don't know how to use Zoom to host, host online lectures or even record or upload simple notes. Some professors don't even know how to upload grades, let alone whole lectures. So like, there's a lot of issues. There's a lack of training for a lot of professors on how to do this. And there's um there's a there's a lack of knowledge in using digital learning digital learning management systems in the schools, so it's gonna affect a lot of grades and it's not looking good for a lot of students, unfortunately. So what is one thing that you would say to people who who are finding things difficult? whether it's like online classes or graduate or people who are graduating this year or for residents who are out of state? You know, I'm from Ghana, um, it's a country in West Africa. You know, my, my, my dad actually, he's um, unfortunately due to the virus. He was supposed to come back, but like they kind of grounded flights and he's stuck, he's stuck in Ghana. And so, yeah, like, I'm dealing with some rough times myself, trying to figure out how to take care of things at home with my dad not being there and managing things on my own, because just me and my brothers, basically. So, not going to lie, I'm probably one of many other people who are going through tough cases. I had a resident whose house is under reconstruction due to some fire damage. He had nowhere to go. But, like, my dad usually say in his own accent, we are not in the normal times. I'm like, you're right. But then he would also respond saying like, what was it saying? Yeah, he would respond like saying, you know, tough times don't last, but tough people do, you know. And that's something we got to do in these tough times. Like imagine the what the bubonic plague wiped out a third of the entire globe's population. Spanish flu wiped out much more. Freaking Ebola was 
terrible for the continent of Africa. And there's so many other epidemics and diseases that have wiped out the world. But right now, all I can say is that we just got to keep our head up, take it one day at a time, unplug from social media, unplug from news outlets, just wash your hands, avoid contact as much as possible, and just read a book, do some push-ups, talk with your loved ones, write poetry, because at the end of the day, like, human beings, we need an outlet. That's really good advice, Jesse. Um, So... Is there a single positive that you see coming out of this? I actually do. You know, as somebody who is transitioning into the adult life after in about four or five weeks because I'm graduating, um, it was it's kind of sad that I won't be able to have a graduation ceremony. I actually canceled my cap and gown order today because there's no point. We're going to have like probably like a virtual graduation. So it's like I don't need the point of wearing it. I might as well just get the money because I might need it. But um, it it was nice to uh, you know. It's nice to you know have this time to kind of sit down, relax, be with your family if you can, because you know life really doesn't give you breaks like this. It's always working, working nine to five. You know we live in a capitalist society, capitalist society where it's like we're driven by money. Everything you do is pretty much driven by money, and so. Like, we're always chasing, we're always trying to chase the bag, as the young kids may say, you know. And, and this is a moment and period of time where that's not really a priority right now. Right now, we need to survive. Your health is your wealth. And being able to sit at home and just relax and enjoy time with family is okay. And that's something we probably all need. Okay, so my last question for you is, what is the first thing that you hope to do once this is all over? Listen, invite me to every brunch, every function, every party, every get-together, every hangout possible because, honestly, I'm an extrovert and I really do miss being around my friends, being around people. Kind of want to travel. I think what I really want to do is travel, meet new people, build new connections, and, you know, make more memories because this is this is a rough time. And, you know, trying to... Trying to replace the bad memories with some good ones basically thank you so much jesse no problem hannah anytime my thanks to wrc news reporter hannah varkey coming up chris Sarconis is going to be updating us on the latest in sports with an interview with rutgers public health professor mitchell rosen that's all coming your way right here on wrsu fm New Brunswick. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear, filling in for Smokey on his birthday, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Just look at the news. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless. And I'm not just talking about obvious things like campfires or letting your totally sweet nephew, Francis, play with matches. I'm talking about dumping your used barbecue coals willy-nilly or parking your car on tall, dry grass. That can lead to poof. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. But listen, being a South Carolinian, I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous, deciduous, or new car scented. So if you love the outdoors like me, go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention because fire safety is always in season. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. When the Bruh. Bruh.
Alan, what are you doing on Tuesday? Bruh, just relaxing. What if you tuned into Brum Meets World from 10 p.m. to 12 a.m.? Bruh? On WRSU FM, New Brunswick? Bruh? 88.7? Bruh? Home of Records Radio? Bruh? Bruh. Bruh. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Chris Akonis. We're now into week three without any major sports being played due to safety concerns over the coronavirus. As the United States is expected to approach its peak in coronavirus cases later this month, some leagues are preparing contingency plans to finish their seasons, potentially involving closed-door games at neutral site locations. Here now to give the public health side of the story is Dr. Mitchell Rosen, professor of public health at Rutgers. Dr. Rosen, sports are currently suspended for the remainder of the spring. How far down the calendar could this sports hiatus go? I don't want to make a judgment call on what um, you know what the the uh, fall will bring at this point because we're still looking at um, the infection rates now keeping uh, increasing. Um, we need to keep the social distancing to to mitigate the problem so that we don't keep on transmitting disease. And I think following those patterns and looking at the the surveillance data that the state and local authorities are collecting will give us the answers to those questions. And how much of a role does widespread testing have in making it safe to play sports again? Well, widespread testing helps to identify who and where the the illness is. And doing that monitoring will enable um, public health authorities to to create um, you know the the social distancing and finding where the transmitting the, the people who are transmitting the disease and the potential to transmit disease. So um, having testing is important to understand the the overall. Um, the overall um, basis of where the disease is coming from and how to prevent the spread of it. We're speaking with Dr. Mitchell Rosen, professor of public health at Rutgers. We're discussing the various hurdles to resuming organized sports in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Rosen, some leagues, the NBA in particular, have suggested the idea of, you know, maybe taking all these teams and putting them in a neutral location, have them play in a sort of quarantined environment. Do you think that would be a potentially safer solution than just waiting it out and trying to resume business as usual? Um, you know, again, there's the, I guess if you, if everyone was, you know, totally quarantined, um, didn't have interactions with anybody else, that's a, Possibility, but it's really hard to do that. Um, and that means no family members, no um, other, you know, only people coming in to take contact with others who have been quarantined for 14 days. Um, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. And how do you get them there without, um, you know, coming in contact with others who potentially haven't been quarantined? So it's a, it's a complex, a complex way to try to solve something without uh, fully being able to comprehend the overall picture of what needs to happen. And my final question is, what is your message to sports fans at a time where 
you know, the coronavirus pandemic has just completely taken over and shut down the world of sports? My message would be that, um, you know, we all want to see sports back. We all miss it. Um, you know, we're sports fans and love to see that, you know, the, the you know, I feel really bad for the, uh, the Rutgers basketball team, um, you know, had such a great, exciting season for the fans, uh, for the coaches, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, we have to put our, our wants, uh, you know, our needs before our wants. Um, we need to stop this. We need to continue social distancing. We need to you know, continue washing our hands. We need to stay home so that we can get back to some of the normal activities that we want to do. And you know, sports being such a big part of that is something that we that we want to get back. But we need to do the things first before we get to that point. Dr. Rosen, thank you for spending time with us. While Rutgers sports are officially done for the year due to the coronavirus pandemic, there are still plenty of developments on the recruiting trail for the Scarlet Knights. We'll start with men's basketball, where the biggest pickup was Cliff Omaruyi, a top 50 big man out of Roselle Catholic who committed to Rutgers on Sunday. Omaruyi was Steve Peichel's top target in the 2020 class and will likely get key minutes as a freshman in the front court along with starting center Miles Johnson. The Roselle Catholic product committed to Rutgers over final offers from Kentucky and Arizona State. Omarui is the first top 50 recruit for the Knights since 2008. On the gridiron, Greg Schiano continues to pick up wins on the recruiting trail as he looks to build his class for 2021. Rutgers picked up several commitments in the last week, most notably linebacker Kyrie Banton, who was the first four-star recruit of the second Schiano era. The 2021 class is currently ranked 11th in the country and 5th in the Big Ten. Thanks, Chris, for updating us on what's happening in the sports world. That about wraps it up for me tonight. Thank you to all our guests, as well as Hannah Varkey and Caleb Kubray for getting those interviews for us. If you ever miss one of our shows, you can go check it out on the website at wrsu.org. And all you got to do is search for Nightbeat, and you will be able to find it. And you can follow us on Twitter at WRSU News for the latest updates. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joey Block, and this has been Night Beat coming up. It's more WRSU music programming here on WRSU-FM, New Brunswick. At 88.7 since 1974. And online at WRSU.org. This is WRSU-FM, New Brunswick.